Let's turn in our Bibles to a special we're going to do this Sunday on Psalm 51. Turn to Psalm 51. And I know you're thinking, how do I do that? Well, the first thing you have to do is uh, get a Bible. We have help, helpfully provided Bibles on the back of the seat in front of you, and we call them pew Bibles because they usually live right there in the pew. But where would I go for Psalm 51? Please don't turn to the table of contents. Oh, no, don't do that. Take thy Bible and grab the middle and tell me what you found. Grab your Bible. Just somebody shout it out. What would you find when you went to the middle? What, what, say it. What'd you find? Psalms. That is the correct answer. I usually get to Isaiah when I go to the middle because there's a big chunk in the back of, of extra material, concordance and stuff. Anybody find something else? Proverbs or Job? Proverbs. So if you find Proverbs, I'm going to cheat a little bit and tell you Proverbs comes right after Psalms. How would you get to Psalm 51 if you turned to Proverbs 24? What would you do? This is tech support. This is Texas, 2,000-year-old technology. What you do is you would turn back. You would scroll back in your scroll that's now a codex, a book. And if you were in um, what comes before Psalms, I always forget. If you're in Job, yeah, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. If you're in Job, now that's the book before Psalms, what would you do? This is going to blow your mind. Scroll forward. You would turn, you would go this way to the right side of the page. If you're reading an English Bible that's printed from left to right. And I tease you uh, because I just like to, but um, it's such a privilege and pleasure to just be able to know where stuff is in the Bible. And it's not that hard. What I'm really trying to do is demystify it a little bit. Just flip to the middle. I learned that when I was a little kid. My mother, it was the one thing, you know, that I um, remember from growing up about how to navigate the Bible, besides the little songs in Sunday school, you know, um, let us sing the books of Moses, of Moses, of Moses. You know, I learned, I learned to sing it in, in order as a little kid. But I always remember, flip to the middle, and that's where the Psalms are. And if you didn't get quite the Psalms, you're close. Now, why is that helpful? Because it's the hymnal of Israel, because it's 150 songs. It's never right to say Psalm chapter 51, because it's not a chapter. It's not written like that. It's a book, a collection of poems that were sung in Israel Many of them, most of them by King David. And uh, actually, I forget the percentage, but it's a big percentage of the Psalms are D- Davidic. So that some, one summary is the Psalms of David is the kind of summary like the Proverbs of Solomon. Nevertheless, we're in Psalm 51, and I want to challenge you today to take a, a, a fresh look at this well-known passage because, of course, you've read it and you know it and you know so much about it, but there's so much more perhaps than we could know. Um, if, we, uh, if we look at it in its detail. Well, that's not what I wanted at all. We're having tech, tech troubles up here. That gives every time, everyone time to turn in the Bible to Psalm 51. 
I'm calling it King David's Prayer of Restoration, Prayer for Restoration. And it's well known to us, and I'll just read it in the New American Standard, and we will get through part of it this morning. Psalm 51 begins with a superscript. My Bible has an extra thing in there. Before the superscript, it says, A contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. Thank you, Lockman Foundation. That's what the translation committee threw in there on top of a double superscripted psalm, which is interesting. But anyway, then the original Hebrew verse 1 says, for the choir director, and then the original Hebrew verse 2 says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this takes us back to David's great failure and the intervention in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that the Nathan the prophet brought to King David. And so we're, uh, we're, we're historically located. I think it's a sound superscription. I suspect that uh, most of the superscriptions, I, I like them in the, in the Hebrew Bible. I know it's in italics, and so we're not sure, um, you know, if it's original, but it's in the Masoretic text. It's at least ancient. And um, so it is, though, the, the person that collected the Psalms together and the inspiration of the Spirit, perhaps, as a prophet in Israel, is uh, collecting them, organizing them, and even commenting on them to, to give you the historical location. And um, nevertheless, that's the superscription. And then you have a, a series of requests. And I want, as we get started, as we just read it through in English, and then we start juicing it in Hebrew, that's what we're going to do. We're going to read through it in English, and they're going to juice it a little bit, not too much. We're going to look at the poetic structure of a few of the verses in Hebrew. I want you to think about how many times David makes a request. How many requests or demands does he make of God? And I mean that in a, in a uh, respectful sense. He's begging God. And so he's, he's leaving off the please or if you wouldn't mind. And he's going straight to the save me demands that someone in dire straits will make with his creator. It says, be gracious to me, O God. Did you just mark that one? That was a request. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Did everybody see the second request? This is a fun game. All right. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Okay? Keep counting. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold. Technically, yeah, that's one. But, I mean, we'll, we'll say, yeah, that's kind of a, an idiom. But behold is, hey, look here. Look here. Behold. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. That would be a request. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation 
and sustain me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. He's still making requests. That my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. He finally steps out of his immediate first aid triage situation, save me, between him and God, and then he asks for the others. You notice that? By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Let us enjoy genuine fellowship on the basis of who you really are and who you're really making us. Build us up so that we're capable of the privilege of bringing our offerings and sacrifices to you. Psalm 51. Y'all know the story, right? It was the summertime when kings go out to war. King David did not go out to war. Let's do the background just really quick because it's Sunday morning and we should read the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11. How will I get to 2 Samuel? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's right about there in my whole Bible. It's, it's about that much of the Bible. So Genesis through Deuteronomy takes you through Moses' books, and then we start walking through the history of Israel. Joshua judges Ruth, and then you're in 1st, 2nd Samuel. So 2nd Samuel. It's like, what is that, the 8th or ninth book? It happened in the spring. I'm sorry, I said summer. I meant spring. At the time when kings go out, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Then David sta- but David stayed in Jerusalem. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we already know there are some serious problems with the story. We are, pro- or we are primed to say something is wrong with David. Because kings, as a principle, go out, but David counter to that principle, sent his men. He didn't lead them. He sent them. And then if we didn't catch it at the end of verse 1, he stayed in Jerusalem. Principle number one on avoiding gross moral sin, personal sin of a fornicative nature. If you want to avoid fornication sins, don't put yourself in a circumstance where fornication is a temptation. If you don't want to commit adultery, then don't set yourself up for an adulterous circumstance. It's a condition-setting thing because if we know anything about ourselves from the Word of God, we know that we are weak, we are prone to temptation, and that is without ever leaving the house. We don't have to go up on the roof and watch her, her take a bath, as he will, to have problems with our sinful nature and our temptations to personal sin. And when you take that inner temptation called the sinful nature that believers still struggle with, if you take that problem of our sinful nature and you 
intensify the challenge by an external pressure, something that draws you toward the personal sin that you already feel like engaging in, then you can easily see that you're setting yourself up for failure. So I call it condition setting. We set conditions to keep ourselves out of circumstances where in a moment of weakness we will make a grave, horrific error. David makes an error, a mistake, based on a moment of weakness, and then he compounds his problem so much that he looks like, uh, it looks like Macbeth by the end of the story. There is so much blood on his hands. There's so much disgrace on the house of David from what he does that it is, it is shocking. People have challenged people of an Arminian persuasion, so this is where David loses his salvation. David doesn't lose his salvation, but he loses his focus. I don't know if I've told you this before. One of my professors, my beloved professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, was the famous, unflappable Howard Hendricks. I told Robbie Dean when I first started my training in 2004 at Dallas, I said, I got this man named Howard Hendricks for Bible study methods and hermeneutics. Robbie responded via email. He said, everybody uh, has taken Bible study methods and hermeneutics from him for 50 years. So has it been and so shall it be. (laughs) And he was a phenomenal teacher at this. When I took it from him, he had a team teach. Uh, the president of the school is Mark Bailey in, in the Bible Exposition Department. And uh, that's, where we, that's where we hang out, in the Bible Ex Department. And uh, he, uh, he team taught it because uh, Hendricks had cancer. And in that semester, they removed his, I believe it was that semester, they removed his eye because he had cancer in his eye. And he, he taught or spoke in chapel from then on with an eye patch. And eventually the cancer got him. But I remember, I tell you, that's a lot on Howard Hendricks, but Hendricks said, in one memorable moment, I forget what we were talking about, but it was very helpful. He said, temptation is a matter of uh, many things. One of them is you have to set conditions. And he said he, t- he was counseling a young man that came to him once, very sincere, uh, perhaps in an in a, in a inner city, an urban situation. I think it may be in Philadelphia, but I'm not sure. Maybe it was Dallas. And he said, I'm really struggling with going into these uh, movies, these um, adult X-rated movies, um, I just can't stop going in there, and I, I don't want to do it anymore, and I know it's a sin, and it's, it's destroying me. Now, this is back before the telephone and the internet. The, the, the phone is now a, 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 a data device, and the internet is now um, that, that constant anywhere, everywhere availability. But Hendrix said, so um, what, why do you do this? When, when are you doing this? Let's look at the circumstance. And he said, well, it's on my way home. When I walk home from school, it's right there, and I... I, I know I shouldn't go in, and maybe once or in a while I, I prevail and don't go in there, but usually I just break down and go. And he said, well, is there another way home that you could go where you don't walk past that, that X-rated theater? And he said, yeah, you know, it would probably save me four minutes. <laughs> the benefit of the humor is perhaps that you'll remember it. The point is setting conditions. What are the conditions that will make you fail with respect to, let's talk about the sin of fornication. Now, biblically, fornication is sexual contact that is not between a husband and wife. It is a gross 
error and it is a sin that has special cursing throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. When the Apostle Paul starts talking about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says there's an avenger for this. And it's an interesting thing because you can be arrogant just for you. And you can be jealous and all the mental attitude sins that destroy your soul. You can be bitter, just you. And you can spring up and be bitter and hurt others. But you can just do that by yourself. But this particular sexual thing requires two people. And we're engaging in something that destroys both. Very often while saying, I love you. I love you so much that let's disobey God and flaunt his expectations, flaunt his design. That's not love. That's lust. So how do you avoid, David could have avoided this whole scenario by saddling up his mule. As we'll hear later, he has a mule. Perhaps he has many horses, right? He's going to saddle up his war charger and go to war and lead his men and operate the operation center where he's supposed to and, and be the commander, the commander-in-chief on the field. He didn't have to make all the, every plan, but he needs to supervise. Because the kings go out to war, but David loses a battle in his own head, in his own house, because he's not on mission. He's not doing his job. He isn't setting necessary conditions either. So here's an interesting principle about David and failure and success and fornication and adultery. Here's an interesting suggestion about this. If you have duty, it's hard to do your duty sometimes. You don't feel like it. That lazy kind of be so much easier to cancel plans. You know, that's, that's our laziness kind of kicking in. We're slothful. We're indolent. We don't want to move. Objects in rest tend to stay at rest. Objects in motion tend to stay in motion. So get moving so you can get moving, right? But understand when there's something that you have to do that's your duty, like go out to war in the springtime, and you don't feel like it, ah, I've been to war so much, and I'm running out of ibuprofen or whatever. I'm tired, I, whatever the excuse just know that there's more to doing your duty than the initial immediate task that you think of when you first think of it. There's more to your duty than, well, I'm going to go out to war. There's also, I'm going to be with my people. I'm going to lead them. I'm going to be an example to them. I'm going to represent Jesus Christ to them. There are so many more things about you being you in your situation than I have to go and it's going to hurt my back to get up and I have to go do the thing. Whatever has David in a state of inertia and, and lethargy. I don't know why he didn't go to war, but I know what happened since he didn't. I know what happened because he didn't. So what do you do here? Well, you say, if there's duty for me to accomplish, I better be serious about it. I better take it to the Lord, especially when I don't feel like it, and say, obviously, I have to do this. I said I would. It's my, it's my obligation. Please help me with whatever the obstacle is so that I can go do it. Let me, God, you do this through me. How many times have I been invited to speak to someone or asked to go, go see someone or, or just I knew I should, but I didn't feel like it most of the time? X is in the hospital. Could you drop everything and just go to the hospital? Yes. Well, there's a thing about breaking through yourself. We all have it, whether you're a chatty Kathy or you're a very introverted, reserved person. You have to break through yourself to go and talk to someone, especially someone you don't know, or someone that you know and you know there's going to be issues. And you have to go do that. I've, this is very common for me. 
And you just have to say, disregard how you feel. Forget about that. There's duty. What should I do? What does God think I should do? What, what does God want me to do? These are all objective things that have nothing to do with how I feel. And we just say, let's go do that thing. That's our duty. And so you get serious about duty. And here's what happens. You say, God, I don't want to, but I know you have me doing this. So I'm trusting you. I, I didn't say I was feeling this. I said, I'm saying this. I'm believing this. I'm choosing this. God shows up. The word is powerful. My weakness, for whatever reason, is a great demonstration of God's strength because the person becomes a believer, because the truth comes out, because the problem gets solved, because God works in the situation. And so this is the, this is the message of the story of David, is he didn't set conditions to avoid the gross sin because he wasn't doing his duty because there was some reason he didn't feel like it. He didn't say, I think I'm going to stay home and watch the chick on the, on the roof. The young lady up on the roof. He didn't say, I want to go uh, destroy my life and uh, cancel uh, so much of God's blessing in my life. He didn't say it that way. He just didn't want to go do his job. And so unintended consequences, one of them is the conditions that we're setting. If you're on mission, if you're focused on the Lord, if you're doing your duty that he has you doing in his power, the other challenges that might be pitfalls on other paths are not available to you. There's no Bathsheba on the roof if he's out fighting in Rabbah. You see it? So helpful. Let me do the inverse of the story. Why is David such a sniper in 1 Samuel 17? Why is he a one-shot, one-kill with the biggest warrior on the battlefield? And people will say, well, the Holy Spirit flew that rock right into Goliath's forehead. And he may have, but the Bible doesn't say that. It says the battle is the Lord's. I think from everything I could tell in the story of David, he is not there in 1 Samuel 16 to, to, to be interviewed by Samuel because he's out watching his father's flock. And the reason he's doing that, listen, is because his father told him to. And so he's a young man. Now, listen, this is crazy. I know this is like another world to us, try to think back to how it used to be five years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago or in David's case, 3,000 years ago. His dad told him what he wanted him to do and then despite all the reasons why young, probably teenage, 16, 17-year-old David didn't want to do these things, he did it anyway because it was his job because his dad laid him on this responsibility and he honored his father and mother expecting long life in the land as the commandments promise. And so David was a young man of mission. His father puts him on the mission. He stays on the mission. It's the thing that Eliab brings up to him in 1 Samuel 17 when, when uh, he shows up on the battlefield. Where, why aren't you with your sheep? Well, dad sent me. Dad sent me to the sheep and he pulled me out of the sheep, put a servant in charge of the sheep, and then he sent me to come to you. David does what his father tells him to do. And here's my thought about that. This is just my personal opinion of David Sniper. David, son of Jesse, sniper. This is why he is the slinger that he is. His dad gave him a job, watch the sheep. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to watch. You're vigilant. It's the inverse of hunting. You're watching the prey to make sure that the, that the, the hunting animal doesn't get them. David says two of them came and I killed them both, a, a lion and a bear. Why is David so good at what he does because he's been given a job and he's a thinker and he says, well, what we have to do to do this job, we've got to be good at slinging. Maybe someone trained him. Maybe there was a, a family member or servant that showed him how to sling and said, you've got to work on this all the time. But I think when I think of David in the fields with his sheep, I think of a young man who's watching 
and he's constantly slinging at a target. He's constantly practicing. I think his diligence as a young man to do the job that his father gave him set him up to kill the giant and to rise in the hearts of the people as the future king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed. 1 Samuel 17, David is victorious. And God sets him up in the hearts of the people to fulfill what God told him. He'd make him king. Saul is slain as thousands, but David is tens of thousands. The, the nation wants him as their king already. In 1 Samuel 17, and it's many years before he becomes king, but he's been anointed to be the king. What's my point? Faithfulness in the little things. Faithfulness in the duties that you're given. Set conditions for you to be successful. And we see that with David on the battlefield with Goliath. It's so clear that he has to show up as a shepherd. King Saul says, you wear my armor. That's the good stuff. He's the strongest soldier they've got. We'll give you the best armor we've got. After all, my champion needs to win because we're going to say we're going to do the single combat thing. So let me give you the very best in our equipment to make sure you can fight. I heard it once said that King Saul put David in his armor so that the people would think that David was Saul fighting Goliath. But I don't think that makes sense. In the story, in my opinion, in 1 Samuel 17, Saul gives David his armor and his weapons because he, David has to win. If he's going to go up and do this, he's got to be the champion because there's going to be a battle as a consequence and how this single combat goes is going to determine how the rest of it goes. So he's trying to, to do all that he, Saul's trying to do all that he can to, to win. Another thing about this, another thing about this, David is trusting in God every step. He runs to the battle line. He doesn't sling multiple slings. He doesn't sling multiple stones. He does one shot, one kill. The, the movies try to portray Goliath throwing spears and doing all this other stuff. It's actually very terse how this battle goes down. David runs up to the battle line, he slings the stone, and he hits him between his eyes. And it says the, the rock goes into his skull, and he falls down dead. And that would be skull fracture. And how does he do this? And, and today's slingers, the best in the world, are Balearic slingers. They can't do that. The best slingers in the world can't hit one shot, one kill of a nine-foot target with a, the head-sized you know, thing from 10 or 20 feet away. They, they've got to take multiple shots at it. How is David so good? It, it, of course, God is working in the situation. But my point is that God has always been working in the situation. God was working in the thing for, for his purposes when Jesse put him, the youngest son, out in the fields. And the character of this young man is evident from 1 Samuel 13 when God tells Saul, I'm going to take my spirit from you. I'm going to put it into a man after my own heart. The point of the David saga is look at the character being developed. Look at this man. He is the stuff of greatness because of his heart, because of what's going on inside. Well, greatness is not on display in 1 Samuel 11, or 2 Samuel 11. In verse 2, now when evening came and David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is this not, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, uh, uh, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What's going on here is a very interesting thing. The Hittites are Gentiles, they're one of the ites. They're one of the many ites that have been uh, rejected by God, that have been kicked out of the land, that are, um, they're not Canaanites, but they're close cousins, closely related to the Canaanites. Their culture is Canaanite Baal worship. 
these Hittites. Uriah is, that's a Hebrew name. Uriah the Hittite is a Jewish or a Gentile proselyte into Israel. He has joined the family. He's a conversion by faith and the practices that God had for Israel to join the commonwealth, to to, uh, come under the Abrahamic covenant. And that's, and so we, we just throw this around, Uriah the Hittite. He's a Gentile who's been circumcised to join Israel. That's who Uriah the Hittite is. <clears throat> and so Israel is fulfilling, at least in this one case, its mission of representing all the nations to God and saying this is what it's like when the Creator rules in our midst. And Uriah, this pagan Gentile, has come in to join them and has, like Ruth the Moabite, says, I'm going to have your God as my God. Your people will be my people. And we don't know the backstory on Uriah except that he's a Gentile and he's a pagan and he's joined the commonwealth of Israel. Think about what this is saying for the king of Israel to transgress this man. Now, it's bad in any case, but it's specifically a problem when you have the mission success in Uriah's case and then he's going to be murdered, turns out, by the king. I hope that's not too much of a spoiler alert because I know that, you know, not everybody's read the Bible, but this man that we just mentioned, Uriah, is about to be murdered by the king. This story in 2 Samuel 11 seems so contrary to the David we saw who wouldn't strike the, the Lord's anointed, King Saul. It seems so contrary to the character of the young man in the fields with his father's flocks who put his life on the line by killing a lion and a bear when they try to take the flock, to take the sheep. Verse 4 of 2 Samuel 11, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. That's euphemism. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. <clears throat> The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. And then David sent to Joab, his general, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. The character differential is this reads like a Mario Puzo kind of novel. This, this, is a, this is Godfather stuff. This is the king with his power doing whatever he wants. And so that's a little bit of a scandal you know, the neighbor girl got pregnant, so we're going to have to do something about it. So he calls for Uriah, and this is the shocking part, the character of Uriah in contrast, as the narrative is set up, the contrast with David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. I want to make conversation. Tell me, Battalion Commander Uriah, about what's going on at the war? How's the general doing? How's everything at the front? And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house. Wash your feet. Euphemism. Clean up and then do what soldiers do when they come home from war to, with their wives. Go be, a, go be a husband. Uriah went out of the king's house and a present was the, from the king was sent out after him. Here's a basket. You guys have a date. Have a nice little, little uh, care package from the king. But Uriah, and this is the great contrast, David is at ease. He cannot be moved to go to the uncomfortable battlefront. It's, it's, it's awful. Going to the field, 
is not camping. Because, as Brennan, you can attest, the minute the tanks roll out the gate, it starts raining. And you say, well, it doesn't matter you're in a tank. Oh, it matters. Everything that you own and love is about to be covered in mud for days. The only hope you've got is that one sharp E6 says, okay, turn up, close all the hatches and turn on the heater. And you say, Sergeant, it's May in Texas. Why are we turning on the heater? Just trust me, turn on the heater. And an hour later, all the mud that's gotten all over all the equipment and all over the floor and your whole world is a mud bog because it came off your feet, this clay that's everywhere has, has been dried into clay like to be broken off. And you can break off the dried clay and then sweep it up off the floor. And that's life in the field. It's horrible, but it's also a lot of fun. You're with your friends, you're going to gunnery, you're doing things, but, but it's, it's hard fun and it's a tough call and it's a hard life. And so David is in uh, repose on vacation, and now he wants Uriah to join him on vacation. You go down and spend time with your wife. Now, why does David make nice with Uriah, Uriah like this? Because he's just a giving kind of person. No, because he wants to cover up the pregnancy. Oh, that one came a little early, Uriah. Congratulations. That's, that's what's happening, obviously, in the story. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. See, my house is where we go after the warfare is over and my soldiers are all back. But I'm a leader and my soldiers aren't back, so I'm going to stay here. Now, this is very clearly a judgment on the king. He slept at the king's door. And in a sense, you could say he disobeyed an order. Go down to your house, wash your feet, and here's a present. I'm not joining you in this. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to, the, to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Meaning you've been away for a long time. You're home. Go see. Go see her. Go, go, go under your house. Go sleep in your bed. Go sleep. Uriah said to David, the ark... That's the Ark of the Covenant that is the manifest presence of Yahweh among his people. <laughs> the Ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat, to drink, and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. If we didn't get it in verse 1 that David should be out with his men, now we're getting it for clear, very clearly in verse 11 that this, this is the sense, this is the, the moral outrage the writer is implying in his inspired telling of this story. So Uriah, a lesser man than King David, not anointed to be the king of Israel, not a man after God's heart by any uh, external description or statement, is very definitely the man David should be. He's the man David was. He's the man David will be. But right now, he is the foil. He is the contrast uh, to the king. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. 
And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but did not go down to his house. So David tried the old, um, you know, honey trap. Let's liquor him up a little bit, reduce his inhibitions. Let's see how committed and moral he is about his principles with a little bit of, uh, a little bit of wine in him. That was, that's the, what, this is a manipulative sociopathic thing that's happening. How far out of his head has David gone? And it, it begs the question, how far out of our heads can we go? We're not supposed to say, oh, bad David, good us. We're supposed to say, what would I do with the Goliath situation? Would I run to the battle line? Say the battle is the Lord's, I'm trusting in him. What would I do here in this situation? David is far from reality and intent on getting his way, and that's the secret. It's all about him. Verse 14, now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So bring up the troops to the worst place in the battle line, and whoever gets killed in this, you know, collateral damage. And then everybody but Uriah Take 20 steps back. Abandon him on the battlefield. You know, today's military, they say, Rangers leave no one behind. Everyone takes great pride, rightfully so, and we, re- we get our own. Somebody gets hit, we recover their remains if we can. We bring them back. This is the exact opposite of that sentiment. Bring our own out there to have him killed by and, and so think about this. What, is the, what are those men, those guys in the squad saying as they're being commanded to withdraw? What's going on in their hearts with their consciences? David has now included Bathsheba in his sin and Joab and everybody else that is part of this conspiracy now. It's, it's epic how bad this is. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he sent Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went and fought against Joab. Some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So we do have, not only does David succeed in killing Uriah unnecessarily, it's a murder, but unintentionally David has these other men killed as well. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war, He charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? See, they're laying siege to Rabah and it's a waiting game. Eventually they'll quit because they're out of food and water. But if you go up by the city, they can kill you is, is what's happened. Who struck down Abimelech and the son of Jerebusheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So I made a horrible military decision, but I'm obeying your idiotic and criminal command, is what the, the, what the general says. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent, sent to tell. And the messenger said to David, The king prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance to the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. 
And then this, is, this tells you how far this is a different person almost than, than we know King David. David said, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. What is, what is, what is David's remark? It's war. People die in war. That's the way he justifies what's happened. He's a butcher. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to her, his house. She became his wife. Then she bore him a son. And the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Catch that phrase of the last verse of verse 12 of, of chapter 11. Uh, it was evil in the sight of the Lord. That comes up directly. That language is directly used by David in Psalm 51. Well, the rest of the story is that David is completely divorced from reality. He doesn't think of God or what pleases God. He's not thinking that way. He's compartmentalized his life. And, well, I, I mean, I'm the king. I'm the king. So we've only killed a few people here. We've only bereft Uriah's family of their son. We've canceled the future generations that co would come from him. Canceled his family line. And uh, I've just taken his wife. And, and what Nathan the prophet then does is he tells the king a parable, as you know, in chapter 12, and brings David's judgment down on himself by telling him a story that is about a sheep and shepherds, uh, a, a shepherd and, and sheep, instead of about a king and soldiers and wives. So David has obviously transgressed greatly, and he doesn't even see it, and he doesn't even know it, and then Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12, 7, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. See, before David ever identifies that he's sinful, he's judged himself in Nathan's parable, but God speaks. God, through Nathan, says, I set you up. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. It will even take your wives. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And then David said to Nathan, upon this oracle from God, which you've never heard anything like this from God to David. He said, I've sinned against Yahweh. Nathan said to David, the Lord Yahweh also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Whoa, whoa. He just said, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan responded, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Why would God immediately switch from the wrath oracle, which by the way, stays in effect, 
Why would he switch to, I've taken away your sin, you will not die? Because David confessed his sin. It's so, so dramatic there. I've sinned against the Lord. I see it. The Lord has taken away your sin. You won't die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went out of his house and the baby died. Psalm 51, for the choir master, a melody of David. Mizmor uh, could be translated psalm, but usually we would, but, but the meaning behind that is melody. And David was very... Uh, adept and uh, expert musician. <clears throat> the superscription, which is the Hebrew verse 2, but is just a superscript in yours, when Nathan the prophet went in to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And that is an interesting turn of phrase, even in the superscript. When Nathan went in, Bo went in to David, went in to speak to David after he had gone in to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Now, it's euphemistic in the superscription, but I just wanted you to see that. It's the same verb. Nathan goes in to David because David had gone in to visit with Bathsheba. All right, verse 1 in your English Bible kicks us off. The little crazy script up above is the Masoretic text of the Hebrew. It's in uh, what we call Aramaic script, and it's um, the one that you learn when you take Hebrew class in seminary. It's the one that your Hebrew Bible will be printed in, and there are several different ways of making these letters, but these are the letters. He says, behold, me. Behold me, O God, according to your loving kindness is the actual uh, Hebrew order of what he says. Behold me, Hine is behold, Hine ni is behold me, and David is by this calling upon God to look at him. And he wants him to regard him or look at him with his compassion, with his loving kindness. I want the stuff that comes to your kids, not the stuff that comes to your enemies. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my iniquities. I went back and forth on this word, macha. Translate, uh, it's machay here in the imperative. Macha, mem, chet, he, is to wipe out or utterly annihilate, can be military context. You can talk about that for most often, it would be a military. They wiped out the enemy. That word blot out in your English Bible. Uh, that's, it's, it's very, it, it's poetry. It's, it's very vivid imagery to say, Get, completely remove this, expunge this from me like a military route. Like there's no more soldiers on the battlefield. Wipe out my iniquities according to the greatness of your compassion. Now, y'all observe this with me for a second. This is how you read the Psalms. If you really want to study, meditate on the word of God day and night. Look at, look at verse one, just the two lines. And do you notice anything about these two lines? What do you observe about these? The first thing that jumps out to me is that he says the same thing Twice. He says, according to your loving kindness and according to the greatness of your compassion. Both times he uses what I'm translating as according to, and it's this little particle, uh, cough here, which means uh, like as or according to by the standard of. You see that? According to, according to? It's repetitious because Hebrew poetry almost always says the same thing twice. Or it says one thing and then it's opposite, but it's, it's always doing these doubles. It's saying the same thing, and it's repeating, which is to say the same thing. It's redundant, and it repeats itself. Now, redundant means repeat itself, but they're two different words, and that way you really get it, and that's a, a very 
overview crash course in biblical Hebrew poetry. So we're rhyming in thought, not in words, not in sounds, but in thoughts. And if we really pulled this apart a little bit, you would have the request, behold me, O God, behold me. That's a, 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 technically an imperative of entreaty. He's making his request. But the way I want you to look at me, the eyes I want you to have on, the lens through which I want you to look at me is your loving kindness, your chesed, the, the love that goes along with your obligation to us according to covenant, chesed. The love that is obligatory, that is your responsibility based on your covenant stipulations that you've committed yourself to. God passed between the fragments of animals or the, the, the sacrifices in, in Genesis 15 when he put Abraham to sleep and, and cut the Abrahamic covenant with him. God commits himself to this chesed love for Abraham and his children. And so David is calling upon God's covenant faithfulness. But then we have a little bit of a reversal. He says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Did you notice that when we put it up there on the screen? That we had the request and then the basis for the request. Then the basis for the request followed by the request. Did you catch that? You see, he did that order. That's called an inversion. And uh, some will call it a chiasm. But that inversion, when he flips the order, A, B, B, A, what you're supposed to do with that is focus on the center a little bit and say, what is he doing with the center? What, if, if I told you that the middle part is the focal part, then what would you be focusing on as we start this psalm of contrition, of request for restoration? You'll be focusing on the character of God. We want to focus on blot out my transgressions, and we need to, but that's the frame. On the outside, God, look at me, blot out my transgressions. I'm going to make these requests here, but clearly it's you. It's your character that's in view. That's the focus. In your spiritual life, you and I will, in our spiritual life, we will be attacked by lies that the devil himself whispers through his fallen angels and various media about the character of God. And the lie is something like he doesn't care about you. He's not concerned for you. He doesn't want the best for you. He's not seeking to promote you. He's seeking to hold you back. That's Genesis 3.5. He's a holder backer. He's stingy. And he's angry at you. And it's a good thing because you deserve it. And this is what the world and Satan's system will do with the truth of God's righteousness and his justice and his high expectations. But we're dealing with the God who is there, the, the one who really exists, not the, the paper tiger, the paper um, uh, straw man argument that Satan presents of God, where we have a God who is righteous and loving, who has wrath and grace, who is perfect and marvelous in all that he says and does and wants the highest and the best for you. If you would focus on who God is, then you would be strengthened to know how to talk to him. We don't approach him cringing like somebody that isn't his family. We approach him as a little kid. We climb up in his lap and say, Daddy, I, I was wrong here, but I need you to treat me like I'm your kid. And that's what's happening here. 
according to the relationship that we have because of who you are. Blot out my transgressions. So my challenge to you is just in verse 1, there's already something very important to us. David, very clearly, just observe it, he brings his sin. I've got transgression and iniquity. Transgression is I stepped over the line, did something you said not to do. Iniquity is there's unrighteousness. Iniquity is something that falls short of God's character. And there are synonyms. It means sin, S-I-N, little word, big consequences. There are many synonyms for sin. That's sin synonyms. <laughs> sin synonyms, you can say that really fast. Many words for sin in the passage. There's, there's um, transgression, there's iniquity, and there's sin and uh, uncleanness and wickedness. There's all kinds of words that are describing what David has done. And it's inside out. He did these actions that he took, but it came from the heart that was corrupted. David brings his sin, his need, and his request. That's all he has to offer. And God has the loving kindness and compassion. David doesn't start off with, I am going to bring a bunch of sacrifices and offerings. I'm going to make up for this, Lord. You haven't seen anything like what I'm about to do for you. He doesn't go there. He says, you are the one who has the compassion and the mercy, and I'm the one with the sin and the need, so save me. He presents himself before God as the person in need. This is how we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. It's about God's character, even in our verse, for confession of sin. God has the the love and kindness and the compassion. And so the basis for David's request for cleansing is God's character. So how do you apply that in your life? Well, my problem, I know my sin, David will say, it's bad. It may not be what David did to Bathsheba and Uriah, but it's bad. And I can't get past my sin. My sin is so bad. We get arrogant about how bad our sin is sometimes. It's funny how we'll get arrogant about stuff. We get arrogant about the, the craziest things. My sin, hey, it's not about how bad you feel about your sin. It's not about uh, uh, how bad your sin is. This is about how big is God's compassion and his mercy. The character of God is the thing we focus on when we're talking about this need for cleansing and forgiveness. Well, I'm not a very bad person. Compare your not so bad to God's infinite, perfect righteousness, right? Only an only a, a egomaniac is going to say, well, I'm pretty, I'm, my, my goodness is as good as God's goodness. No, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even in our self-righteousness, there's a transgression of God's character. God doesn't have any competition. The basis for David's request, obviously, is cleansing. Uh, for, for cleansing is the character of God. The basis for his request is the character of God. And there's the faith principle for you and me, and we'll never get past needing to trust him. It's childlike faith, like I said, climb up in his lap like a little kid and say, I was wrong. This is confession of sin. Because of who you are, I'm trusting in you. Make your appeal on the basis of God's revealed character. Even as he opens and summarizes, and by the way, a lot of the Psalms, the opening couplet is the summary. A lot of times, the, a, a lot is being said in just a few initial words. So already we're off to the races with something important. We've done background a little bit. We've done a little of the story, and we've seen how to make our appeal. What do you do with this? Well, there are many principles we've come up with this morning. Set conditions. Set conditions in your life to avoid gross personal sins. 
The most important condition you can set is being in the Word every day, meditating on it day and night so that you're like a tree planted by, the, by streams of water and your roots sink down deep and you have strength in God because the Spirit of God is working in you. Father, we thank you for the privilege of learning about King David, his failure. Seeing the comparison is not that we're better than David, but that we, like David, need you to clean us up whenever we fall short of your glory and our choices. We want to glorify you, Father, because you glorify yourself through us. In the power of your spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.